And as the kids are dismissed, will the rest of us please uh, join me in John chapter 11. We'll be in verses 55 through somewhere short of verse 19 is my guess. As you're making your way there, last week, uh, Jesus declared in John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus declaring here that he has power over death. And that for the one who believes in him, that is the one who believes that he is the son of God, that he has the power to forgive sin and to give eternal life, Jesus says that that person who believes will have everlasting life. Isn't that awesome? Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have, most of us, hopefully for Christians, right? You've, You've received everlasting life from Jesus. You believe this to be true. And just in case any of us don't believe it's true, then speaking to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who was at his grave at this point, Lazarus was in the grave, Jesus asked her, do you believe this? Do you believe that I have the power over death and to give eternal life? That Jesus is the source of eternal life? And as we mentioned last week, the reason that John records all these events, just one after another, is so that by reading them, so by looking at them, pondering upon them, the readers might believe, that we might believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And this is John's entire thrust throughout his gospel, that we might believe. And by the way, if you read First, Second, and Third John, he lets you know, again, that you might believe, that you might know what a true believer is and what one isn't. This is his whole ministry, his thrust in John 3, 36. John says, whoever believes in the Son has it. Well, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so Jesus came to save those who would believe upon him. The word believe is really interesting. It's repeated 48 times in the book of John, not to mention 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. But this is John's thought over and over, that theme of belief and unbelief. Those who believe upon Jesus and those who don't. It's very important to keep that in mind as you're moving forward. And so Jesus declares to Martha in chapter 11 that he was the resurrection, right? And then he proves it. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out of the grave. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And as a result of that miracle, John tells us in verse 45 what happened. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. So the Jews who had come up from Israel, some of them mourning, I think these were the mourners who kind of came up professional and otherwise. It says that many of them believed, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So those who believed and those who did not, right? John just keeps on going back and forth throughout the book of John. And we see at the end of chapter 11 that those who did not believe, when they went to tell the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were just two miles away, um, what happens? 
they decide to plot to kill Jesus. They just say, this is enough. He's doing too many great things. Everybody's going to believe him, in him. The high priest just basically flips out and says, listen, this guy's going to bring us all down. People are flocking into him. They are believing in him. And what's going to happen is we're going to lose our place, our standing as leaders among the nation of Israel. And then Rome is going to think that there's this leader who's being raised up, who's going to go against the Roman government. And then the Romans aren't going to stand for it as the people flock to him and they're going to crush us all. And so that's their self-preservation that's going on there. But it says, and because of this persecution that Jesus had, verse 54, that Jesus therefore no, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now, as you pick up this morning in verse 55, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And so John tells us that the Passover is at hand. We keep seeing this through the book of John. That's how he tells us what time it is. It's all focusing down to this Passover. That's what's going on. That's why he keeps repeating all this stuff. So we kind of know, we have a time frame of what's going on. Remember, we were at Hanukkah three months before Passover, the Feast of Dedication. And now here we are at the Feast of Passover. We know that the Jews had to go to those feasts, the three of them per year. And... Uh, so from verse 55 of John chapter 11, all the way through chapter 19, it's just the last week of Jesus's life. That's, that's what he's focusing on, right? Up to his, into his burial there in chapter 19. And so this is, this is very important to John. He keeps repeating, um, he keeps uh, teaching about this last week, a recording for us about this last week of Jesus's life. And so the people there at Passover would go up to Jerusalem early and go through various washings and sacrifices to prepare themselves for this feast. And as they were, verse 56 tells us they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood there in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come at the feast at all? So they were going, hey, is this, is he going to, is he going to actually show up? Because the Pharisees are out to get him. And so it was the talk of the feast. And that was the reason why, as verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let him know. Why? So they might arrest him. That was what was going on. And so we have the masses of people, and say, some say as many as one million people converging on the city of Jerusalem for this feast, many of whom are wondering what in the world is going to happen to this radical rabbi uh, Jesus is going to show up or not. And everybody's under the, the fear of the religious leaders that they must rat, you know, rat Jesus out, basically. And so everybody's wondering what's going on. And so the stage is set for chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had arrested from the dead. I'm sorry, I had raised from the dead, excuse me. And so, uh, yeah, no, I was, I don't, I don't even have an excuse there, just <laughs> brain replaced something, uh, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at the table. And so remember that Jesus had left, obviously he had left, and he went beyond the Jordan to Ephraim, and now he's coming back for this feast. It's a short time later, 
This is the last week of Jesus's life, and he was required to go to that um, that feast. And as Jesus comes back, he comes through and stays in Bethany, which is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, right? It's just two miles away. So from here to Big Five, uh, from Jerusalem, basically. And despite the Pharisees' orders, you got to love this, despite the Pharisees' orders, instead of telling them where Jesus was, they, they throw him a party, right? They, they give a dinner for him. And I loved, and this is a sub point, but I love this because John points out, what does he say about Martha? And Martha is serving. I don't even think it's her house. This is interesting. Uh, it's probably Simon the, uh, uh, Simon the leper, but we'll talk about that. But it's a sub point. But the Gospels repeat over and over about Martha. What do they say about her? Like in almost every single setting is that she's always moving. She's always doing something. Anybody like that? Martha is a person who cannot sit still. And... She's a, she's a woman of action. I mean, she is just constantly serving. She seems to always be serving in some capacity. Does anybody know anyone like that? It really is her gifting from the Lord. It's just her makeup. I think it's pretty, it's pretty sweet. If you remember back in the last chapter, Martha was the one who heard that Jesus was on the outside of town. Martha stayed in, uh, Mary stayed in the house, but what did Martha do? She got up and went straight out of town and went to the edge of town and to see Jesus. And then that's when that dialogue about I am the resurrection and life happened. Martha got up, Mary stayed in the house. And it was Martha in Luke 10 who was busy serving while Mary was what? At the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching, right? And now John again points out that Martha is serving at this dinner with Lazarus as the, and uh, Jesus is the guest of honor, right? Lazarus is reclining there. So we don't, he's just kind of either dead or reclining. That's what he's doing. Um, but serving seems to be her gift from the Lord, huh? Just a real, real servant. But as we mentioned, we learned from Luke 10 that that's a double-edged sword. It's really a double-edged sword, and uh, Martha didn't know how to prioritize that gift. And I think this is really important to remember for us. If you remember back in Luke 10, Martha's busy serving, and then she complains that her sister Mary is doing nothing. She's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings. And so Jesus has to gently remind her, gently you know, rebuke her. He says that her serving had become a distraction and that it had become a source of great anxiety in her heart, in her soul. And she needed to do the one thing that her, actually her sister was doing, was sitting at the feet of Jesus. I only say this briefly because, um, again, many of you, many of us are, are gifted in the area of service. You just don't stop. You keep going. You're serving everybody and all those other things. And, and, and that's really a, a beautiful gift from the Lord. Amen? I think it's, it's so precious and it's so good. There are, we are to serve the Lord. But as we serve the Lord, as we serve his people, as we serve those around us, it can come to a point where it's a point of distraction and anxiety. Anybody else had that? And just as Jesus simply reminds Martha here, we've got to know the priorities of sitting at his feet in learning from him in worship and also when it's time to serve, right? Service flows from abiding. 
And if you get the cart before the horse, you're going to burn out. And you're going to be frazzled and you're going to start to say, well, why isn't so-and-so doing something? And you're also going to start to get anxiety over what you're doing and then it's just out of, t- out of touch. And so I just see this in Martha's life and, and, and while this is a beautiful picture of a servant of the Lord, I think there is that correction there that we've got to spend time as servants at the feet of Jesus. And that's, and that's where we see Mary all the time is at the feet of Jesus. Back in Luke 10, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching, right? She was taking in his word and just in deep fellowship with him. And now here in John, we find her once again at the feet of Jesus. And so there's these characters that Jesus is popping in and out. We see what they do and how they are. And Mary seems to be more reflective and more kind of uh, emotional and more uh, kind of just uh, spontaneous seems like Martha is the organized leader, right? And uh, so there's just this beautiful mix here. But Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And here in, in verse 3, it says, Mary therefore took a pound or about 12 ounces of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. You know, again, we, we read these, but can you imagine that? You're in a house. There's Jesus, who's this amazing prophet. People don't even know what to say about him. He's the son of God, obviously. He has 12 disciples sitting in there in this house. It's probably Simon's, the leper's house from, I think, Matthew 26 and Mark 13. And they're all gathered in there. Lazarus is there. There's probably others. And here this precious woman comes in and anoints Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume. We know from the other, um, other gospels that it wasn't just his feet. It was his head as well and just, just anointed his body. And the, and the fragrance filled this room. So just imagine that. You're all there. There's protocol. There's Everybody's sitting at the table and Jesus is there and all of a sudden this woman comes in and just takes this costly and breaks it over him and, and gets on her hands and knees and, and, and starts taking her hair and washing his feet. And the, the fragrance fills the whole house, let alone actually what's happening just permeates everybody. If you've ex- have you ever experienced something like that where just a scent just permeates? Uh, we were at like World Market in San Diego. I remember that, Christine. We were, um, it's like some kind of place where they sell uh, like bamboo for $100. I don't know what it is. It's ridiculous. Um, but there was a wine rack, a wine display, I guess. Some poor person just was not looking where they were going and they knocked over, they hit the the display with our cart and all the wine fell over and hit and it's just like it smelled like every kind of wine there ever was just in that whole place it just permeated the place it couldn't get out of your out of your nostrils I was going to talk about a skunk but I won't do that Uh, but if you experience something like that it's very memorable and John tells us not only did the was the smell 
really distinguished it, permeated everybody. He says that it was, it was expensive. It was costly. How costly was it? Uh, in Mark's account, and also Judas will confirm this, it was three, were 300 denarii. In your mind, I want you to think about how much you make in a year. And that's how much this vial cost Mary a year's worth of wages. It was of great value. Not only that, Matthew 26 tells us that the alabaster vial that it was in was extremely expensive as well. So not only the ointment, but the actual container was broken and and she broke it and she poured it out over Jesus. Mary's worship was costly. It was costly. Her deep love for the Lord was demonstrated in that act of worship, you know? When King David was, was negotiating to buy the threshing floor where the basic, the temple mount would be and, and all that back in 2 Kings, um, you know, they were doing this kind of Middle Eastern negotiation thing. They said, oh, we'll give it to you for free. And then David comes back and says, hey, you know what? Um, I think he was... Uh, what was it, Verse uh, 2 Samuel uh, 2.24, David said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That cost me nothing. Why is that? You know, David, David had a high view of who God was. David, therefore, sat, his sacrifices reflected that view. Does that make sense? And guys, I'm not talking about your tithing right now. I'm just saying that his, the worship, the object of his worship uh, was so ingrained in his mind and was su- of such value, it was just repulsive for him to give anything but the best to him. Does that make sense? I'm not going to give something that costs nothing. It talks about that in the Old Testament, how they would bring their their lambs that would be sacrificed and stuff. And they had to be inspected for impurities because the God, God, was, God is holy. And obviously that was a picture of Christ, but you, know, you didn't give them your, your lamb that had one leg and one eye and said, hey, let's just get rid of this and give this to God while I keep the best, right? You gave them your best. David had a high view of God. You see, worship is the response of a believer to the grace and character of God. And I've been, I've been missing this a little bit in my life. Anyone else? Just a response to his goodness and his glory and his kindness towards me. You know, um, we've been loved with the greatest love as believers. The greatest sacrifice shred, shed for us. Of immense worth, of immeasurable cost shed for us, poured out for us to redeem us. The sacrifice of the Son of God on our behalf to save us from our sin and from the wrath and from the judgment of God. The love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't just give a wounded, limpy lamb. He gave his own son on your behalf, on my behalf. What love he has loved us with And he who has been forgiven much loves much. Remember that verse? You see, it shows. It's to show in our worship. It just reflects. Remember, just like 
faith is demonstrated by works. So worship is demonstrated in how we worship. Our understanding of him and how beautiful and how deep he is and how rich and how good he's been towards us is, is reflected in our worship of him. And this is why Paul says it's, it's, not, it's not just a matter of money. It's not just a matter of singing. It's not a matter of all these things. You are to be a living sacrifice. You are the thing that gets on the altar and offers yourself to God. I am. It shows. And if it doesn't, reverse engineer that this morning, amen? <laughs> In your heart. But you see, Mary poured out what was most costly to her upon Jesus in worship because he was of infinite worth to her. Her offering was costly. But not only was her act of worship costly, and we can kind of get into that thing where we take our offerings and throw them in the plate out of our abundance kind of a thing, where we can say, hey, look what I did. But look at the, the manner in which she did it. It wasn't just what she gave. It was a reflection of her worship. It was, it was the heart in which she gave it. Do you see that? She did it with a heart of humility. She wiped his feet with her hair. You know, the task of washing people's feet, obviously, was, it was assigned to slaves. It was assigned to servants. It was not something that common people did. This is why Peter said, no, Lord, this, do not, you're not washing my feet. You're the master of this place. There's no way that you are going to do that. And yet we'll read in a little bit that Jesus took on the form of a servant. He knelt down and he washed the disciples' feet and he said, you go do likewise. Greatest is the least in the kingdom of God, right? But this is what Mary did is she was at the feet of Jesus and her heart was so humbled by the Lord that she was willing to wipe his feet, whatever they looked like, whatever was going on there with her hair. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There was just such a brokenness, a, a poverty of spirit. I've been teaching at the Christian Ed Center through the, through the Sermon on the Mount and um, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the idea of poor is that there's no status. You have no wealth. You have no standing. You have no, it's not just money, it's, it's, there's, you're destitute of spirit. Jesus says, those, it is those who can be extremely happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the riches and the power and the glory. You know what I'm saying? That we share that as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It wasn't that, the Lord, that Mary worshiped the Lord with great sacrifice alone. It was that it came from a heart that was deeply humbled and it showed when she wiped his feet with her hair. And here Mary, when she does that, there's something I can't quite figure out. Why? Why with her hair? Has anybody ever thought that? It's like I couldn't find a rag or whatever. It's like, no. This is something deeply connected to who she is. And my mind just keeps going, you know, as I've been studying through various things about all of this, but there's something I can't quite figure out. But 
My thoughts go to Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, when he says that a woman's hair is her glory, that it is given to her as a covering. And I know there's a different context there. But the idea that, is that women's hair, is, is it uniquely identifies them. It's something given to them by God. And there's something about women and their hair that's deeply connected to who they are. And the point is that I'm stretching at, and by the way, this is, not, this is my take on this, is that she takes her hair, which is uniquely tied to her very being, and she in great humility uses that to wipe Jesus, to clean Jesus' feet. You know? An extension of her glory and just kind of just, I mean, how broken was this woman before the Lord? How much did she love him to be able to do that? How selfless was she? How, did, how much did she know that he was everything and how beautiful the worship poured out of her. More of this. I think this is why Peter goes on and says, hey, you know, don't worry about the adorning of your hair so much and braiding those things. He's exhorting women. He exhorts men too, but he says, man, what, what really honors the Lord is a heart that's broken before him. Don't focus on the external. Let the inward beauty pour out of you. And this is what we see with Mary here. Just beautiful. Just an astounding act of humility and love and worship for Jesus flowing out of Mary, worshiping Jesus at great cost and great love and humility for him and publicly and just not worried about her own self, but just about him. How great was that love for her, uh, for him, you know? And yet, You've got to take it to the other side and go, well, then how great was his love for her? Because that's where it sprang from. And John repeats that in the previous chapter. And John says the fragrance filled the room. I love that. You know, I was trying to connect. In my mind, I was thinking about the Old Testament, how prayers rise up like incense. And Paul says in Corinthians where he and the apostles are kind of like leading a procession and they are the fragrance of Christ to God and just, just how, the, how beautiful it is when a believer is in humility, worshiping the Lord and just what a pleasing aroma that is to him. It couldn't have been more beautiful. Mary at Jesus' feet. More of that, church, huh? But verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Just a bummer. Here, John reintroduces us to Judas. He mentioned him briefly earlier, but as he is no doubt contrasting Mary, a true believer, with Judas, the archetype of a non-believer, a false believer, Mary is selfless, and what is, Jude, and, and what is Judas? He's selfish. We learn that he's selfish because we'll, we'll keep reading here, but at this point, there is no one in the room who knows what's going on in Judas' heart. No one knows except for Jesus. Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. He knows what's about to happen. Judas and Jesus are the only one who knows what's going on. They all think he's a believer, but he isn't. He's the ultimate hypocrite. And we know from Matthew's account that at the end of this meal, Judas is going to get up and he's going to walk down to Jerusalem and he's going to go meet with with the Pharisees, the high priest, and he's going to plan the burial of Jesus right after this. 
Judas claimed outrage over the waste of such a valuable asset that it be good sold for a year's wages for the, for the poor, but we see in John 6 what really is going on. He said this, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a what? He was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. That was his motive. His motive wasn't, oh, you know, hey, Mary, you know, you just wasted something that could have been done for the poor. It was like, why isn't that going into the coffer so I can control this? And I could use it for myself. That's what was going on. And this is what John keeps driving at about Judas. They thought he was in, but he was actually out. Right? True believer, false believer. Those who believe, those are don't. don't. Mary was this true believer. Judas, although he appeared to be, was actually not. Jesus, back in John 6, 63 through 64, it is the Spirit who gives life. This is Jesus speaking to the group of disciples all gathered around him. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, but there are some of you who do not believe. Then John adds this commentary. It says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning who would believe and who would betray him. And if you keep reading 65 through the end there, it says, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then the infamous John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 67, so Jesus said to them, do you want to walk away as well? Disciples, 12. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Makes that great profession. And then Jesus answers them. Instead of someone awesome, Peter, he says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He already knew. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 24, it would have better, been better for this man to have never have been born than to betray the Son of Man. This guy's sitting with them the whole time. He's dining with them. He's doing the whole miracle deal. I mean, he's all the way up. You go in just, in just another night or two, Jesus is going to be at the Last Supper and he's asking everybody, yet one of you is going to betray me. And they go around the table, is it I, is it I, is it I, is it I? And you get to Judas, he goes, is it I? Knowing full well that he had already betrayed him. And Jesus said, it's you, go do it, must be done. And Satan entered him and he went and did it. So this is something that is, John's getting at, that there's this person who's close to Jesus, he's betrayed by a close friend, is going to leave him and go, give their position away, and this whole thing's going to fall apart. And here Judas is at that night, like a snake ready to strike, all coiled in this hypocrisy. And Judas didn't care for the poor. He didn't care at all. It seemed like it, but what he really loved was money. That's what he loved. The archetype of a false prophet. He loved money. And we will see the end of that infatuation with money ends 
with him hanging on a tree after he threw the money down at the feet of the Pharisees. So Jesus comes to Mary's defense after Judas attacks. Jesus, verse 7, said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's a little bit confusing. The NIV does a better job of translating this verse. It says, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. That's the idea. Its purpose was for my burial, not to be sold for the poor. Leave her alone. You see, the part of what the Jews did when someone died is they, is they took, obviously, those spices and they wrapped those people up. And, um, you know, they're like mummies, and they just shoved them in the tomb. But it was to help with the smell and all that stuff. They wrapped them with these spices, and she intended to keep it, as, uh, as a lot of people did for people they valued. But Mary didn't wait. She just couldn't wait. She poured it out on Jesus. She poured it all out in spontaneous act of worship that night. And what she did not know is that doing that was giving a precursor to what would happen within a week's time. As we see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea actually take the body of Jesus and wrap it in these spices. And so Jesus says to Jesus, hey, this was saved for me, for my burial, not for the poor. Leave her alone. Verse 8, for the poor you always have with you, but what? You do not always have me. Jesus keeps talking about the light. The light's among you. Walk in the light while you have the light because the dark's coming. He's saying, I'm with you right now. The poor, you're going to have to deal with that always, but I am with you right now. This was her focus. It was on me. And Jesus was shortly going to be betrayed by Judas. You see, it's fitting to take care of the poor. And they were going to do that. But night was coming. But right now, the light was there with them. You know, I, I, I kind of, I'm in a, an awkward spot because we'll just, we can move forward here, but I think I'm going to stop. And um, I just want to contemplate on that as a, as a church this week about our worship with the Lord. You know, we can, I was thinking about the, the parable of the widow's might. And I know it's a little bit of a different thing, and I know that deals with money. I'm not driving at money this morning. I'm driving at, driving at worship. But Jesus was in the treasury, and, and he was watching people give as he's in the temple. And there were rich people giving large amounts of money. And Jesus wasn't knocking the rich people giving large amounts of money. What he was knocking was the perception that that was more to God. Because the widow came, and, and, he, and she gave her two last coins, and she threw it in the thing. And Jesus says, I tell you, that she gave more than all of these. And it just, just goes to show that what we perceive is, is worship to God isn't, isn't always worship to God. You know, and I think that woman's faith was demonstrated in her trust in the Lord with what she had. She gave everything. And I'm not telling you to give everything. I'm telling you that you, you know, as worshipers, I think, we come to the place where we can become calloused as we walk with the Lord. Anybody there? You know, we can forget the sweetness of the Lord and what he's done for us and the great sacrifice. And it can be wrote, wrote and we can put things on, you know, auto, 
auto send and you know we can just kind of okay i've got the worship category figured out <laughs> anybody else come and sing the songs you know and i can you know can do the things and okay glad that's all checked off but i know everything's not to be a, an emotional like breaking out experience don't get me wrong but i just think in the heart of a true believer there's just this there's this love and affinity for jesus just a brokenness and a reminder and, a, and just a, a deep adoration and a humility for how gracious he's been to us and and that's a work of the spirit you know and that's what i desire for me and for our church is that we would be deep worshipers of jesus not just head knowledge which is which is important to know the truth to know him but to know him intimately you know what I'm saying? To where what we know about him just radiates through our soul and it responds and, wow, that's who you are as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It turns into worship. You know, I was thinking at the very first worship, the first mention of worship in the Old Testament is, was it Genesis 22 or 23? It's when Abraham took his only son Isaac, 22. And he said, we're gonna, I'm going to take the kids. They were asking, hey, you know, hey, where, where, where are you going? He goes, I'm going I'm to take my son, and I'm going to take him over yonder and worship. The very first mention of worship was about a father taking a son to be sacrificed. And obviously, the Lord withheld his hand because it was a picture of the true father who would not withhold his hand from striking his own son on behalf of all of us. So the worship that should flow out of the church is um, something that I, I'm hoping the Lord would work in us and that it wouldn't just be Sundays, guys. There'd just be a heart of worship and that as we do serve, that it would be worship, that as we live throughout the week, it would be worship. That as we sing, it would be worship. That as we give, it would be worship. And just being mindful of how good and how great he is. Amen? And so, uh, maybe that Romans 12, 1. And uh, I think that's Romans 12, 1. Sorry, my mind's a little bit shot this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to be present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may know and discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will, right? So that worship is to be a, a living sacrifice. That's you and me saying, as Christ lives, so we live following in his footsteps, empowered by the Spirit of God. May God give you the grace this week and the strength to just walk in the joy of the Spirit. And I pray that he just flood your heart with those times of just brokenness before him and joy, even if it's driving down the road or at work or wherever it might be, that you just enjoy your Jesus because he is worth it. And don't worry about the sacrifices that you'll give to him. He, you can't outgive God.
you know, if he calls you to things and to do things and to give things from your heart, he will, he'll just expand your ability to receive and to give in those things as he makes you bump into people or circumstances or places in which he calls you to lay down your time or your talent or your treasure in various areas. And he will provide. May our lives be worship. Amen. Father, we just want to thank you so much for this picture of Mary. May uh, you remove the Judas from our hearts. And Lord, we admit that that old man is there. And uh, would you cleanse us from all unrighteousness? May we be broken in spirit, God, and come before you once again, just willing to lay it all out for your precious name and your of your great love for us. So Lord God, I just, uh, I'm asking Lord that as we did take communion that we would be living the gospel, reminded of the gospel, growing in the gospel and not become calloused and professional Christians but we would be those children in relationship with the Father learning and growing and receiving from you. That we may grow to reflect you, Lord Jesus, as you walked with the Father. I pray for the brokenhearted this morning, that you help them and encourage them. This life is hard, and the temptations are many, and we're pulled in every direction. And so, Lord, speak clearly to their hearts this morning, to our hearts, that we be drawn to you once again. And I uh, pray that there be the times of refreshing in your presence. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.